listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. I, uh, I filled my car up with gas this morning, okay? I have not driven. I mean, I drive to the, the supermarket, you know, to get my medicine, to the, the, the alcohol store, and it's, at the furthest thing is three miles. So I haven't filled my gas tank forever. And gas is only $1.97, and I have a small car. I paid $16.00. To fill my car up today, and I know it's going to last for a few months. Anyway, we have a great show today. My uh, guest, my guest was on seven years ago at the, when I used to record in downtown Burbank, and he uh, he still looks the same. Me, I'm bloated, I'm hairier, but he looks great. And my guest is Ray Abruzzo. How you doing, Ray? I'm good, Steve. How you doing? Thanks for the compliment. I don't think you're looking at me right now. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I got. I got. I got to ask you. Okay, I know you. I know. I know you have horses. I know you live in Malibu. I know it's a very serene area. So besides, besides auditioning and going on set and being at an occasional out for dinner, has your daily life changed so much from when you're not working? Uh, it's well with this whole thing. It's, well, it's complete. I'm not leaving the house. I do go up to see the horses. And I'm really limiting my time at the supermarket. You know, maybe I try to make it at once every two weeks. I try to get some stuff delivered. Uh, so yeah, no, it's really, it's really altered. Uh, it changed everything. You know, I wasn't. You know, the business is completely shut down. You know, and I have no idea how it's how it's possibly going to open up again. I mean, how do you how do you do theater? You know, with social distancing. How do you how do you shoot a love scene? Not that I do have any love scenes anymore. With social distancing, you know, it's going to take. Uh, I just don't know how we're going to get back. But my life is, you know, like everybody else that's going through this. I'm fortunate that when the sun is out, I could get outside and get some fresh air. But my heart breaks for my friends in New York that are in apartment buildings and can't get out. They do want to go out. They have to get in an elevator, and then they hear a ding, and somebody's going to get on the elevator. And who's getting on the elevator? So I just feel really fortunate. Um, you know, we're just trying to get through this. New York, New York is crazy because my brother lives on 55th and 6th, and he's posted some right. pictures where there's nobody on the street. No, no, I have, I have friends right there on like 58th and 8th, and at night he'll post a picture out his window, and the streets are dead, and you'll just oh, you'll just hear a sirens going by, and there's nobody on the streets. But the thing is, I just they, they're just so trapped there. If you live in, you know, I'm a New Yorker, I love being in Manhattan. When you're trapped in one of those buildings and you can't get outside, you know, the only thing that keeps me going is if I could get a little sun on my face, even for five minutes a day, just kind of cheers me up. So I, I feel incredibly fortunate that way. Now, not being able to audition and doing, I mean, you've been an actor, you've been a professional actor for so long and you've been so successful. Not being able to really pursue your craft, do you go through depression at all? Because, you know, I know it's different with auditions for a while. You know, people were doing video auditions. But what what goes through your psyche when you're in this position where this is what you've done your whole life and now it's on hold? I mean, I know there was a strike years ago, but what's it like for yeah. you mentally? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because this kind of happens to us organically throughout our careers. We, I go through, there are many times in my 40 years of doing this where I've gone months of no auditions and no work and, and you're just, just fighting to keep your sanity and thinking, well, it's going to turn around. Maybe the phone will ring tomorrow. Uh, the only thing difference with this one is the, I know for a fact the phone will not ring tomorrow. So uh, in that, but as far as just, 
dealing with no possibilities and that's kind of built into who we are as actors you know every every time i've ever finished a job i felt like oh that's it i'll never work again no matter what the job was and then they say oh, that's a wrap for ray abruzzo i hear it as well that's the end of ray abruzzo's career you know so <laughs> that's that's just me but you know so we kind of deal with that all along but the weird thing now is it's like it's, i can't take it personally that i'm not getting if i'm not working you know, throughout my years, when you're not working, you take it personally. They don't want me. I'm not good enough. What's you know? But here, it's like okay, you know, nobody's working. Not that that makes it easier, but it's just uh, you know, at least I don't take it personally. But we're you know, because everybody, no matter who you are, everybody's going through this, man. If there's one thing that's for sure, we're all going through this together. And that's that's a pretty pretty amazing thing the only thing you could liken it to is the way we all felt after 9-11 you know that certain gut feeling that nobody was nobody went, went without so um in that sense i'm just gonna ride this out as long as i can and i count my blessings that i can get outside and you know and you know yes i'd be like to be making some money and, and working because i love working more than anything but uh you know, you just try to fill the days. I don't even know what day it is. Thank God you texted me. Yeah. You said Tuesday. I have, <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, this could have been. You know, when you said Tuesday, you could have. That could have, Tuesday to me sounds like January. I made mean, words. Words. Words have no meaning to me anymore. See, I'm I'm, so, I'm lucky. My uh, my wife uh, goes to work Monday through Friday, um, but she's lucky for the fact that no one is in the office building except her and my and my one of my best friends who's her boss so it's such a weird thing she drives past no traffic for three miles the office is from parks in her garage goes up the elevator sees nobody and then comes home so she keeps me knowing what day it is wow wow yeah yeah the other day it was i think it was saturday or sunday and i swear to god i went i Somehow there's only seven days in a week, but somebody asked me what day it was, and I actually somehow came up with eight different days and never landed on Saturday. I think I said Tuesday and Thursday twice, and, and but I never got Saturday, and I actually was Saturday. I had no no idea. Now I want to talk about your career, but but I got to ask you a question. A while back, I, I I gave you a shout out when I watched the Colin Hay documentary, and you responded that your best line got cut out. What got cut out from that movie? Oh, Jesus, that was so long ago. I, I think it was something about... I, it might have been something about he wore, oh, he wore different color shoes. I think I... Oh, no, no, I think it was about his accent. Maybe it was about his accent because, you know, he's originally Scottish, but he's so associated with Australia because he moved to Australia when he was 13, I think. So he has an Australian accent, but he's Scottish, and he has Scottish sensibilities, and he's Australian, and his accent goes in and out. And I think I said, you know what, you know, he's Australian accent, you know, pick one and live with it. You know, that's something like that. Or or maybe it was about his, he was wearing colorful shoes at the time, and I, maybe I made a comment that maybe he should just add a rubber, rubber nose and start juggling, because he's wearing like these bright boosh. Something like that. Now, now, you're a New Yorker. You're uh, yeah. from Queens, I believe? Yes. Well, which has been hit so hard. The neighborhood where I grew up, every, you know, that Elmhurst Hospital was, you know, the train station right there is where I always took the subway is a block away from that hospital, that's, that Elmhurst Hospital, which is the, seems to be the epicenter of all this. Uh, 
Yeah, it's 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 pretty horrifying. Yes, I'm from Queens. Yeah. Now, now, what were you like as a kid? What made you get into acting? When did when did you decide to pursue this passion? Well, you know, I, uh, there were two things I, I was really interested in. Well, I, I, it was my freshman year in high school. I've told the story before, but uh, and at that point, you had to. Uh, there was a day we had to sign up for an extracurricular activity, and each classroom had a a sign on it like it was the speech club, chess club, people going out for basketball, baseball. And I was walking with a group of my friends down the hallway and we were all peeling off deciding what to do. One guy was really tall, so he was going for basketball. One guy dabbled in the flute, so he was going to join the band. You know, like that. And I had no idea. So I'm walking down and I see a sign that says auditions today in the auditorium. And I stuck my head in. And what I noticed is that the whole first row was filled with the prettiest girls in the school. So I told my friends, you guys go ahead. I'm going in here. So I went in and I auditioned for the play Inherit the Wind. I had never acted before. And I got the part. And uh, that was pretty much it. Once I started acting in that, I, I thought, wow, this feels good. I, this kind of feels right. This, I'm kind of comfortable doing this. Um, and that's where it started. Now, did you go take classes, or did you just start auditioning, or did you start just auditioning and getting on stage? How did you create well, your, your your acting talent? Well, um, from that point on, I did as many plays as I could in that high school. Then out of that high school, there was a, a guy older than I was, Pat Sherrata, who was in that play, uh, who really inspired me, because he was only a senior, I was a freshman, but he played Henry Drummond, and I remember thinking, here's this senior, I think he was 17, and somehow he transformed into this man, this other character, and I was just intrigued by it. So we became friends, and then out of, out of the, the high school, uh, many people, we started a summer theater, we got a church nearby to give us their auditorium, and we started doing summer theater on our own with no adult supervision at all. We ended up getting, getting grants from the National Endowment on the Arts and the Queen's Endowment on the Arts, and we would just do four or five plays every summer, and we'd build our own sets, and we kind of taught each other, you know, and that's the way that happened. So I would do plays in high school, then I would do plays all summer long, and then when I went to college, you know, I, I was going to go to a theater school, and, you know, I, I kind of told my parents that I was going to be a lawyer, so I decided to go to St. John's University, which didn't have much of a theater program. They had what they called speech and theater, so I signed up for that, but after a semester, I realized that there was really no theater involved in that, but they had a theater. So I auditioned for the first play my freshman year in college, and I got the part, and then with another friend of mine, Russ Bannon, we kind of built up the, the theater again without faculty supervision. We did it on our own, and we kind of built up this theater at St. John's and really grew it into something. So then I just basically, for four years in college, lived in the little theater, you know, almost basically was there. You know, I'd barely go to class, and then I would just hang out in the theater. And then uh, I also then, at that one of those summers, I took a summer class at the Neighborhood Playhouse, which is a very famous acting school in Manhattan. So I would take the train into Manhattan and have eight hours of uh, acting at the Neighborhood Playhouse. This was while I was also going to college. And that was kind of how I did it. Now, how I... Yeah. What was it like breaking into the business then? Because, you know, now there's so much TV. And back then, you know, it's like now you can send an agent a link and you can send an agent a headshot and you can go on YouTube and create your own stuff and people will see it. 
What was it like when you decided to go follow it professionally? What was it like for you trying to get an agent, trying to get those auditions? You know, it, 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 it really hasn't gotten any easier. I mean, it, there, there are other ways to do it now, but it's not. I don't know if it's necessarily easier because there's so much content. I mean, how many tapes and stuff does an agent get? I still wouldn't know how to get an agent these days. It's just uh, usually at that point, back then what you would do is you would do a play for no money and hopefully, hopefully somebody would come and maybe that person wasn't an agent, maybe they were a casting director, and they'd like you, and then you'd say, well, you know, boy, I, I really can't, well, well, go see a friend of mine, he's an agent, you know, and then that, it would kind of happen like that, but you would just, at that time, you know, there were no tapes and stuff, you would basically just do plays wherever and hope that somebody would see it, and that's kind of the way it worked for me. I remember when I came out to L.A., I did, a, uh, let's see, what year was that, 19... Uh, 81 or so, and I auditioned for a play, and I got the part, and there was a, <clears throat> a, a, a manager in the audience who saw me do it, and then called me and said, you know, I have a, a, an agent at ICM, we should have lunch, so I met this manager and an agent at ICM, and all of a sudden, you know, that's how that started. I never worked, <laughs> they never, I was with them for two years, and nothing happened, but um, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it happened, you just, at that time, you just did the work, and you hoped that the work spoke for you. Now, I wouldn't even know how to advise a young actor to, to, to break in and get an agent and all that. It's just, it's just so hard because there's no, personal, there's no personal relationships anymore. I could go two or three years without ever seeing my agent you know, or even talking to them on the phone. You just get an email. You have a job or, you, you know, they'll, or they'll send you a contract or you know, they'll send you an email if there's an audition. You know, there's just no personal... You don't even meet casting directors anymore. That was the other way. It used to be if you got an audition, you met a casting director, and then that casting director, if you didn't have an agent, would say, well, I know an agent that you should... But now you don't even meet casting directors because everything's put on tape. Everybody does self-tape. So when I get a job now, very often I don't even know who the casting director was because I've never seen them. Now, you as, know, it's just... As I say, yeah. as an actor, as an actor, now... What is it like doing an audition on tape? Because there's not that live interaction. I'm sure, you know, everyone always says when you read for network and you do stuff like that, and you know, you've been in so many shows that you've had regular auditions. What is it like when you have to put it on tape? Are you more conscious of yourself or is there, or you, is there more constraint or how does that work? It's, it's definitely more constraint because um, there's something that happens in the room when you're in the room, well, the advantage of doing it on tape is you could do it again. You could look at it and say, well, that sucked. I missed that moment. I want to do it again. Or whatever. That's one advantage. But when you're in the room, they're seeing your whole body. They're seeing you before you start talking. They're seeing you after you start, after you do the scene. If the director's a good director, he'll say, you know, that was really good. But can you just, that moment there, could you just... Maybe it's a little more threatening to you. So you can make an adjustment. Now with the tapes, you know, what they could do is they sit at a computer, right? So they're seeing you on this little tiny screen, and they have a list of 50 people that have just auditioned for that thing. You get your first line in. If they don't like the way you look or they, you're not as they imagine the character, they just swipe. You know, it's like a dating app. So they just swipe to the next person. When you were in the room with them, Maybe they, when you first walked in, they thought, no, oh, this isn't the guy. That's not who I envisioned. I didn't do it in your first couple of lines. No, that's not who I envisioned. 
And then you get to a certain part in the scene and you bring something new to it that they didn't see and they go, oh wow, wait a minute, let, let me reconsider this. And then they ask you to do an adjustment. Now you're, you're talking to the director. But on a tape, it's like, boom, within the first five seconds, then swipe to the next person. So, uh, you know, maybe you might be able to get seen more by these tapes than you would going in a room, but I would much rather be in a room with the casting director and the director, do a reading with another actor or whomever off camera, and having some real moments happen. I just think, I don't, I, because it's just, it's just more what it's really like. You know, the, I think it's the interaction with the director and taking notes. As, a, as an actor, if I, I directed too, I want to see how the interaction works, how an actor could make an adjustment, you know, make something his own and then also take a, a note and make an adjustment within that note and still keeping it their own and keeping it fresh and alive in that moment. So I think that a lot of that is lost with the new, uh, was that a long answer to your question? No, no, it makes sense. <laughs> no, because I get so many different, I get so many different responses and it seems like, you know, actors like you and, you know, I know you're friends with Dan Laurie, he's been on my show and different people, you know, you guys are the pros, man. You've been in the trenches, you know what's going on. And a lot of them say it takes away from the whole process because it's, as you said, if they don't like your look, they can say, screw it, we'll go to the next person. you know I mean you've been in a lot of iconic shows which as an actor you must feel blessed just shows that are great television I mean you're in LA Law that was one of your first bigger gigs what was that like because because so many people and then you were in Dynasty so many people watched those shows 
how does your life change when it's not like now, you know, how many ever thousands, I mean, it, millions of people watch those shows. How does your life change when you're in a part like that and people automatically, all, now they recognize you? How does your life change? Well, that, that was kind of interesting because you're right. There were only three networks at the time. So on any given night, you know, at least one third of people watching television were watching whatever you were on. Uh, L.A. Law was kind of a nice little high-profile recurring role. That was, L.A. got recognized. And I remember specifically, I'm going to tell you the story. I was also doing a play at the same time. And one of the guys in the play is John Aprea, an older guy, great-looking guy, good actor. He actually played young Tessio in The Godfather Part Two. He yeah. played the Ape Pagoda part in Godfather Part Two, which is crazy because he's this really handsome man. And here he is. I used to tell him, I said, you know, Francis thinks you're going to grow up to look like Ape Pagoda. <laughs> no, he's a very... <laughs> so, anyway, so um, I went to rent a car. My car was in an action. I had just done L.A. Law. The first couple had aired. And then I went to rent a car, and the guy behind the counter recognized me. And that was the first time I got recognized. So... I go to have lunch with John Apriah and the other actor in the, in the play that I was doing with me, the Thai restaurant in Hollywood, and I'm saying, you guys, you won't believe this. You, that John has been around for a while. I was in The Godfather crying. But, so I said, you won't believe this. The guy at the rent-a-car agency recognized me. And I said, ah, bullshit, nobody recognized me. And I said, no, I swear to God. So just as I said that, these two women in the Thai restaurant, the only other two women in the restaurant in the afternoon, walk over to us, and they say, we just got to Hollywood, and you're our first celebrity. Could we have your autograph? They say to me. So now my friends can't believe this, that this is happening as I'm bragging. So I start to sign my autograph, and the woman says, I can't believe I'm meeting Vinnie Barbarino. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story, and my friends still, still tell that story. They fell episodes with the late great Harry Anderson what was it like working with him because I knew comics that I know a comic named Grover Silcox used to write for Harry when Harry would come into Philadelphia they became friends and then he would fly Grover out to write for his special and I remember he gave Grover a, a laptop and he just said he was such a cool guy what was it like working with someone who is just so funny and you know and you're on set and just, you know it's, a, it's an interesting 
interesting story because years and years before Night Court, maybe it was, I don't know, I was on Night Court in 1990. So this might have been 1978. I was writing for a comic in New York named Mark Wiener. And we used to do all the Night Club, Catch a Rising Star, the Improv, all those clubs. And then there was another club out in New Jersey, oh no, out on Long Island called the Rainy Night House, which used to book acts from Manhattan. So they asked me to MC out at the Rainy Night House, because I used to do a little MCing at the time. So the owner of the club said, there's a new act, a guy in from Washington, I think. He's staying at a hotel, and I had a car. He said, can you pick him up and drive him out to the Rainy Night House? You'll MC, he's the main act. And you, so I picked up this guy, and it was Harry Anderson. This is 1978. And he had just gotten to New York maybe that day, and I remember this as clear as day, him saying, my wife's up in the hotel room, she has the flu, she's really sick, she wants to come tonight. She came to New York with me to do this, and now she can't leave the hotel. So I drove him out there, and I remember seeing his act at this little club on Long Island, and he did the magic thing where he, he took that needle, where he used to take that knitting needle and put it through his arm, and the blood would spurt out. It was just... And I just thought, this guy is so, so unique and funny. And he's like a throwback. You know, he's like a vaudevillian. He wasn't like any of the comics I was seeing back then. You know, he wore the fedora, and he wore a suit, and he looked like an old vaudevillian comic, and he had that same kind of delivery. So I was completely taken by him. Now, fast forward to 1990, when I get cast as Marky Post's boyfriend on Night Court, and uh, we reconnected. Of course, he remembered that night. And he was just... He was just a warm, warm, funny, good guy, unpretentious, smart as a whip. I remember back then, you mentioned that he gave somebody a laptop. Yeah. If I remember correctly, he was writing computer programs back then. He was totally into writing, I, I, you know, I, I knew nothing about computers, but he was, he was actually writing programs. He was totally into, into computers and the technology of it, uh, and back, writing code, I guess that's what they call it. Yeah, writing code back then. So he was, yeah, he was really, really a bright, bright guy. Warm, lovely guy. Yeah, so you, you've always, you know, you had these recurring roles, and, and you know, you, were in, you, know you, you always work, but then, you know, the practice comes along, and is that, you know, that must be, you were a, a regular on that. What is that like when they say, hey, you know what, you're a regular? Well, here, that's the interesting thing. I was a regular on Dynasty before that, and I had done a bunch of pilots, but the practice, I was never a regular. The interesting thing about the practice, it was such a gift. I literally went in, and I was going to do one episode, because I had been on, because David Kelly, who created the practice, and his producers, they were writers on L.A. Law. You just talked about L.A. Law. So L.A. Law was, what year was that, 85? Yeah. So now we're going into the 90s, and uh, and they remembered me, and they asked me to come in and play one part, one episode as a detective. And then they just, like two weeks later, they said, oh, we'll bring that detective back. Oh, we'll bring that detective And they just kept bringing me back, and then they give me raises. I wouldn't even ask for raises, but they never made me a regular, but I would do about 10 episodes a season. And... Uh, and then they would just give me raises every year without without ever asking. It was the most, it was the, it literally kept me in the business because right at that point, I was really struggling and I was having trouble making enough money. That job just came and it was a gift. 
and it was delightful to work on. They treated me like a series regular. I mean, I had my own parking place. I always had my own dressing, my same dressing room every time. I knew the crew because I'd been with them. Most of them, actually, I knew them from, from L.A. Law. It was a lot of the same wardrobe people and all that, so it felt like home. And um, that show literally kept me in the business. I think if it wasn't for that show, I probably would have had to drop out and find something else to do at that point in my life. And that just came out of nowhere. Like I said, it was going to be one episode, and I think I did close to 50, and they were very generous. I made more money then on the practice. That's, that's how the business has changed. Now, so. now, what was it, you know, what is it like when you're sitting there and they keep calling you back and you keep calling you back? How do you plan your schedule? Because you probably have to sit there after like 10 times they call you back. You're thinking, they're going to call me back again. But you don't want to plan just for that, you know, to block your schedule up. How would you How would you balance it? It would usually, it would usually, they usually give me two weeks notice. You know, they'd say, well, this, this episode's coming up. And there were a couple of times I was doing something else. So they said, oh, okay. And they just hired another detective for that episode. And then the next episode, I'd be back. So it was, it was really, the, I mean, yes, I would have liked to have been in a, uh, have a contract and made a lot more money and been a regular, but that really wasn't the nature of that character. Um, you know, because they don't know how often the detective's going to be there, I guess, when they start a season. And I think they just felt comfortable. You know, they don't have to recast it. They know I'm going to do my job, hit my mark, get my lines out in one take and uh, I get along with everybody on the set so I think it was just for them it was just like an, an easy an easy way to do it and they compensated me very nicely uh, like I said more than they would now uh, so it was always just a gift to me every time they call me back it's like great plus in those days those shows would rerun in the summer you know it was before reality TV so much so they had reruns every summer and when a show runs on the network not cable on a network, you get a nice little residual check. So that, like I said, that show just—I'm forever grateful to to David Kelly and all those producers for for keeping me in this business. That's for sure. What's it like working, being an actor, and working for someone as prolific as David Kelly? Is it just like you're sitting there, like if it's basically it'd be like a second baseman getting a lob from Derek Jeter back in the day? I mean, what is it like when you go on set and you know this guy is brilliant? interesting about David Kelly. He, at that point, he was literally writing every episode for The Practice, Ally McBeal, and Boston Public. You know, usually, and he, you know, he had some other writers, but he would write every script, and he didn't type. He wrote every script, He because he was a lawyer. He wrote every script on a yellow pad, and then somebody would type it up for him. And he was married to Michelle Pfeiffer at the same time. <laughs> so, I mean, then, so you got that. And, uh, and I, he never came to the set. He never came to the set. He was just, he was the writer. He was involved in who, who was on the show. But he never, never came to the set. Never, you know, a lot of times executive producers come down. They have their hands and everything. No, his, his deal was writing. And he left everybody else to do everything else. And I'll never forget one time, I came out of my trailer. And it was bright, bright sunshine. And uh, then I went into the, onto the sound stage and it's dark. So I literally couldn't see anything. I came out of the sunshine into the dark and my eyes didn't adjust. And some guy walks past me and he goes, I just want to thank you for your work on the show. I said, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And then he walked by and the door opened. I realized it was David Kelly. <laughs> that was literally the longest conversation I had to him until, until years later when the show was over. But it was like I didn't realize it was him until the door closed and I went, 
oh my god and I just completely blew him up because I, cause I couldn't see you know that blinding light when you're I was just like where am I and uh, so he was you know he's a really low key, he's just one of those he's a genius and he's just a low key guy but I only work with David's apparently David Chase David Kelly David Milch was a great writer on Probochko too that's another great David yeah, I was yeah, going to ask you. I was going to ask you. You work with uh, Chase, uh, another prolific guy. What was it like? You said yeah. when you auditioned, you you got the tape audition. Now, what season were you first on The Sopranos? Say that again. What season? Yeah. Uh, right at the end of season four, I think. Yeah, towards the end of season four, maybe the second or third from the end of season four. So it, it was a. And again, that was only supposed. That was only supposed to be a couple of episodes. And then they killed my father off in season five and then had my character move up to New York. And then they made me a series regular. Now, I remember when you were on uh, years ago, you told me, and I'm, I'm not sure if, it's, if I remember right, but did you decide to wear the cowboy boots for your character? No, no, that was after about maybe two episodes, two or three, maybe it was probably about three episodes in, all of a sudden, they go for wardrobe fitting, and they have cowboy boots and cowboy belts laid out. And I said, what's this about? She said, I got a note from David Chase yesterday that he wants you to wear cowboy boots and a cowboy belt from now on. And I said, uh, okay, I never worn cowboy boots. You know, they're from Queens. I never thought that I would ever wear cowboy boots. And uh, they were really, they turned out they were really comfortable. And um, he never made any reference to it. Nobody ever said why I was wearing cowboy boots. It's certainly not a mobster thing. I had just moved up from Miami, so it's not like I moved from Vegas or Colorado or something. I'm coming up from Miami where I was wearing all, you know, pastels and stuff, and now they have me in cowboy boots and a cowboy belt. So, yes, I did. I wore those in every episode from that point on, and it was David Chase's little quirky thing that he would do for every character. There was a depth to every character, and whether the audience caught on to it or not, uh, it was something that gave a texture, I think, to the show, is that every character had had their own little thing, their own other lives going on. And there was a reason, it turned out, for the cowboy boots and cowboy boots, uh, yeah, cowboy belt. Um, I, I guess I could tell you, you want to know? Yeah. Okay, well, because I was, at that time, this was during uh, the era of George W. Bush, who now seems like a genius, um, and I was the son who was who replacing the father. So, and a lot of my lines were actual direct quotes from George Bush. Oh, wow. So that's why I, that's why I wore the cowboy boots. Now, what is like, it? I had, a line, I had a line like, historically speaking, historical changes have come out of war. That's a direct George Bush quote. That's crazy. Now, now, what, yeah. what was it like working on The Sopranos? It's such an iconic show, and it just, as you said, it's funny. Everyone knew it, even though it was on HBO. As an actor, is there just a certain buzz when you go into a, the, the feeling, when you go into a series, when you know it's just one of the best shows in TV? Well, that's the difference. I knew. You know, I talked to some of the other people, like Stevie Van Zandt or Edie. When they started, you know, they thought this is really a good show. But they had no idea what they were in or what it was going to be. When I came on in season four, it's like this was already the biggest thing almost in the history of television. So I went on. I remember, like I said, they cast me out in California. 
And I remember being on the plane, and then I landed in New York, and they put me up in a hotel, or uh, they gave me an apartment, and then when I first started. And I remember while going to the set my first time, I remember thinking to myself, you better just soak all of this in. This is really special. This is not your normal TV show. So just sit back, enjoy it, and soak it all in. And I did. And, um, and then I realized that the people that really mattered did the same thing. Because I remember sitting with Edie Falco towards the end, actually it was the scene where at Christopher's wake, we're all in the, um, in the funeral parlor, and Christopher was in the coffin. Actually, on the set, Christopher wasn't in the coffin because they didn't want to give away that it was him to the caterers and extras and everything. So they had somebody else's body in the coffin, and they had different mask cards, so any of the extras or crew are wouldn't know that it was Michael Imperioli's character, Christopher, that was dead. So they actually had a misdirection for anybody on the set, and then they snuck Michael in later in the day to lay in the coffin. But that's beside the point. So I remember sitting there, we're waiting, we're waiting, and Edie's sitting next to me. And I never really had, I never had any scenes with Edie other than we were in that funeral scene together, but we never had any dialogue together. I remember we're sitting there, in the next to the last episode of the show, and we're sitting there, it's kind of quiet, and she leans over to me and she says, it will never be this good again. And I thought, wow. You know, it's just that here she was. She knew there was only going to be one more episode. She knew how it changed her life, how it changed television. She knew how lucky we are to have been given those great words to say and with great writing and great storylines, especially her, I mean. This was like, wow. It just really hit home for me that how special that was. I mean, I knew it going in, but you think that maybe people at her level are kind of inured to it, the success of it, the specialness of it, but no, she was, she was as uh, appreciative as, of it, as I was. Now, now, how did people react to you on your offset? I know Chris Caldavino was on, and he said the first time like he was on the show, people knew who he was, and they like got autographed pictures. He had no idea how they knew, you know, because he was a very small character. What was it like for you? I mean, because people, people must have just been crazy because, as you said, it was so big. They must have been like, oh, my God, there's Carmine. Yeah, I mean, for a while, it was pretty quick. Well, to this day, I mean, the, the show, here's the weird thing. The show has been off the air, I think, for 14 years. Off the air for 14 years. And to this day, if I'm in New York or somewhere, somebody will yell out my little Carmine's line. That's the big thing. They just still, to this day, know his lines. And uh, to me, that's kind of remarkable. Because I did have, like, uh, you know, uh, they wrote, a, wrote my dialogue with those great malaprops and the way I would twist the English language. So they're kind of memorable lines. But, it, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Chris. Chris and I never had a scene together. I don't think we were ever on the set together. But our characters are forever linked. And the line that is most quoted to me out of all my lines on The Soprano is, your brother Billy, whatever happened there, which is about him, when I'm having the big, big sit-down meeting and I finally broke a piece between Tony and Phil and everything's going great and they're just about to shake hands and I say, everything's water under the bridge, the no-show jobs, the wiretapping room, blah, blah, blah. Your brother Billy, whatever happened there, and then the whole thing blows up. <laughs> so your brother Billy, whatever happened there, is is actually one of the lines that's probably most often uh, quoted back to me, and that's related to Chris, who's a lovely guy, but we've never acted together, but we're forever connected because of that line. 
Now, wasn't there just a uh, uh, Sopranos convention or something? I think it was in New Jersey, or no? Yeah, the Meadowlands Convention Center in New Jersey. I wasn't going to go, and then I went. Man, it was a scene. Two days, 10,000 people. You just, you get, firstly, you got, I got to see so many people I hadn't seen, well, unfortunately, since Jimmy's funeral. Um, but everybody was there, and, and the band played Alabama 3, played live, played the theme song. Oh, there's a great video of all of us just dancing to the band playing, and at that moment, like I said, we were all just when we heard the music start with the band playing it live. Every cast member was just a fan at that point. We were no different than the people in the audience just hearing that theme song and just going crazy. But it was uh, it was an amazing, amazing event. I mean, was, I don't know how they pulled it together. There was so much detail in what they did, and the logistics were were just to get all those people together and make it work. Uh, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Because I've avoided any of those kind of things. I haven't really. But this. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing is that there were so many fans that came up that were 19 years old, 20 years old, and they're quoting lines from the show. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute, you, you were three when you weren't even born when this show started. And they say, no, I've watched it four times already. And it's like I forget that. It's not like old TV. It's like. You know, if you run Nightcore, people, you know, why maybe they still watch it, but not like the Sopranos, where people will watch it over and over and over again. There's new fans, and fans from all over the world were at that convention. It was, it was, it was truly eye-opening to me, because I didn't think it was still as popular. And I knew it's part of the, it's part of the culture. I mean, you can't watch the news. If you come on any news channel for 24 hours, I guarantee one of the, the talking heads will say, well, that's very Tony Soprano-esque, or that's like a scene out of The Sopranos, or, you know, it's, it's part of the culture. The reference is part of the culture, you know? So, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll always be a part of that. I, I always got that going for me. Now, now how, how good of a talent was James Gandolfini? How good of a talent? Yeah. You know, he, said, he, was, uh, he was remarkable. You know, I, I try to describe... Jimmy as, he was like a blue-collar character actor, just a hard-working, blue-collar actor, a guy that just makes a living, except that he was the biggest star on the planet. But his approach and his demeanor and everything was still, I'm just here to do the work, this is the character I play, this character is no more important than another character, is no more important than the prop guy, is no... and. That really permeated the set, you know? And he had, he not only had the show on his shoulders, he had the whole network on his shoulders, if you think about it. At that point, it was, you know, The Sopranos was HBO, you know? So, um, but he was just, he was a craftsman. I mean, he was, he was a, I call him a blue collar actor, which is, you know, kind of how I see myself. Not a big star, but you're working. I'm a working guy. I'm a working guy. And uh, he was just a working guy, but yet he was the biggest star on the planet at the same time. And he, but he stayed just being that working class actor. And that's the best way I could describe him. And that's, uh, I think that's kind of what made it work. Because when you're in a scene with him, it's just, it was just, it was just like two actors doing it, you know? He was just another actor in the scene doing it with you. And uh, that's what really made everybody else comfortable and made everybody better, you know? Now, now you, you know, after the Sopranos, you you did so many. Uh, you just you've been a guest star on so many great shows. Like you were on Mad Men and The Mentalist and just different shows. 
what is it like when you come in as a guest star? I mean, I'm sure every set's different, but are there any sets that are just so welcoming to you that you're like, holy crap, that was great? You know, they're, they're, the difference of the vibe on a set, I, you know, I don't know how many TV shows I've done, hundreds, and guest star, I've done so many guest stars, I can judge the vibe on the set within five minutes of getting in the makeup trailer. You know what the day is going to be like, because the vibe is there, and it really start, starts at the top. You know, the expression is the number one on the call sheet, number one on the call sheet. So Gandolfini is the number one on the call The star is in, on the call sheet, everybody's assigned a number, and then you call it number one. That's the person that very often sets the tone for the thing. And oddly enough, the set that I felt was the most amazing set to walk onto was, let me remember the name of the show, uh, Harmon. Uh, and, and CIS. Oh, and CIS. And CIS. <laughs> um, I remember walking onto that set, maybe it was 5 o'clock in the morning, and usually everybody's dragging their ass at that time. It's, the light's not even really up yet. And people, you know, some of these teamsters have, and, and crew guys have already driven an hour and a half because they might not live in the area, you know, so they've been up since 3 o'clock and moving equipment. But everybody was smiling. The vibe on that set was so amazing so amazing and I just and I noticed it instantly and it comes all down to Harmon he was the most gracious warm guy I, mean, I played a surprisingly I played a mobster on that I think and I had a guy that played my uh, you know my driver on the show I think he had one line maybe and then he'd open the door for me because I was a big mobster he closed it so he was in every scene with me but usually just standing next to me and I remember I'm sitting in my chair and I'm talking to Harmon and we're just chatting and all of a sudden he sees this guy standing off to the right he calls him over and he gets him from he says here sit down Ray and I were just talking about and he completely pulls this guy into the conversation and now all of a sudden it's just three guys sitting around talking this guy was basically an extra you know and he just made everybody and I said it to him I said you know this is the best vibe of any set I've ever been on and I've been on some great sets I mean NYPD Blue was beautiful the Sopranos was fun because it was really just a bunch of guys like sitting on the stoop or on the corner just shooting the shit that's what it was always like whenever they yelled cut but um Harmon he just kept it uh I said to him what's the deal he goes I realize how lucky we are this show is in the top three every week and he starts pointing on the set he said all these guys all these people are sending their kids to the top to college from this show everybody's taking care of their families and, their, and even their grandchildren. How could we not be happy coming to work? And I thought, wow, that was, and he, he was so humble about it and so aware of how lucky he was that that was also, so I say, oddly enough, NCIS might have been the nicest, warmest, most welcoming set I've ever been on. And I've been on a lot of great ones. Now, and I don't mention any name, but has there been any sets that just sucked? Uh, well, there have been particular people that have just sucked. And the, oddly enough, it's usually somebody that doesn't have the right to be that way. You know, I remember being on NYPD Blue, and all my scenes were with Jimmy Smith and, and Kim Delaney, which is interesting because we were also on L.A. Law. That's why, that's why um, David Bacho brought me into that episode of NYPD Blue, because it, brought, it reunited with Kim Delaney and, and, and Jimmy Smith from L.A. Law. So that was kind of a cool little thing. But I had no scenes with Dennis Franz, for instance. <clears throat> he never came onto the set or left the set for the day 
without coming over to me and saying, hello, good morning, hope you have a good day, oh man, thanks for being here, or oh, I'm finished working for the day, I'll see you tomorrow. And we, and we had no scenes together. But it was just that kind of vibe. You know, when I say guest star, as whenever I've been a series, a regular on a show, it's a real, they're a guest. It's like they're a guest in your house. How do you treat somebody that's a guest in your house? So that would be my approach, and there are actors that are like that. But I remember going on some other show, and the vibe was so weird. Like I said, in the makeup room, I heard somebody say, well, what kind of mood is he in today? And they're like, oh, he's, he was cranky or something. He's already an hour late, something like that. And I thought it was going to be the number one on the call sheet, but it turned out it wasn't. It was like the number three on the call sheet guy. He, so he walks into the, the, the makeup room, and he sticks his head in the bowl of ice, and he's cranky, and they say, you ready to go? And he says, no, I'm going to go and get coffee or something. And he made the makeup people wait, and then, then they came back. And then we go to... We go to rehearse the scene, and he's on his phone, my scenes with him, and he's on his phone. He never looks up at me and says, good morning, how you doing, shakes my hand, or you want to talk about the scene, which is what most good actors do. Nothing. We rehearse the scene, never looks at me in the rehearsal. Then one of the, the sound guy comes over to wire me up, and he goes, Ray, I just want to tell you I'm such a big fan of The Sopranos. God, and you were so good on it. All of a sudden, the guy's head pops up. And his attitude changes completely. And I was like, you know what? Screw you. I've been sitting here for an hour as just another actor. And you couldn't even look at me in the eye when we're working together. And now all of a sudden. So there are those guys. And this guy, you know, he was just mediocre. He was in his 20s. He was lucky that he happened to be on a TV series. You notice I haven't mentioned the name of the series. And I won't. But, um, yeah, so it's the, the big guys are the best. I mean, I've worked with Big Van Dyke twice. And he was... He would, it, you know, if you mention the song to him, he'd start dancing and tap dancing and do the song for you, you know? So the, the great ones are great, and the shitty ones are shitty. Well, I, I remember I saw you on an episode of Castle, and you were with Polito, and I interviewed John, the late, great John Polito, and he was he was just such a uh, a hoot, he was such a nice guy. What was it like working with him? Did you know Polito before you did it? No, I don't think, I, maybe we had met once, but that was really a fun shoot because they brought a bunch of us on. Who else was in that? I think Richard Portnow was in that episode, John Polito, a bunch of guys that I kind of knew, and, um, well, Portnow, I've known for 30 years, but it was just kind of fun because they all just offered us these parts, none of us auditioned, it was one of those things where they just said, all right, let's just get all these guys together, and Polito was a blast. He was so much fun to work with. It was so, I was so sad when he passed away. But no, that was a fun... What show was that? Oh, boy. Castle. Do you remember the name of the show? Castle. Cat, was it Castle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was Castle. Oh, it was a flash. It was a show called The 70s. So, because I think my character owned the club in the 70s. So everybody was dressed in 70s clothes because it was like a flashback thing. So that was, that was actually really... That was really, really a fun a fun show. Castle, yeah. And I just worked with Nathan Fillion again on... Uh, on uh, rookie, on the rookie, he's a lovely guy. Now, not a, a you've, yeah. you've you've constantly been on TV and movies, but you also have gotten away to do theater. I know last time we spoke, I think you played a uh, Lombardi uh, dance part from Broadway somewhere. Do you do you yeah. get, do you get out to do stage a lot? And and do you is it how is it to how does it feel when you're you're live in front of people now? I mean, because you know you're used to being on set. What's it like when you do theater? You know, most of the actors I know, you mentioned Dan Loria before, you know, he's a, he's a theater rat, you know, he has this expression that we do TV to support our theater habit. 
you know, because you don't make money doing theater, but you, you know, we all love it. That's why we, that's why most of us, us older guys, we became actors because we started doing theater, and that's where it's really exciting. So I try to do a play whenever I can. It's hard in LA because traffic is so crazy. You know, like I did a play in Pasadena called um, Mauritius a few years back, and traffic is so terrible. I just had to leave my house for an eight o'clock show. I would leave at three o'clock in the afternoon just to get to Pasadena so I could chill out and not have to worry about driving and I'd already be there and then I'd go out to there. So I don't do that much theater in LA just because it's a pain, but I like to go out of town and do theater. Like I did a play in Seattle a couple of years ago. I like to go, they get to an apartment, you do a play in a town and you just completely immerse yourself in the play and the city and uh, I, I just love, I, I'd like to do a play a year if I could somewhere. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the juice. That's kind of, you know, you, you talked about refilling your tank in your car <laughs> before, just in case you think I wasn't listening to your show. Um, <laughs> it, I, uh, you know, doing theater once a year refuels, because sometimes when you're doing a TV show, it's so, it's so piecemeal, especially if you're doing a guest star part that doesn't have a big arc or a real challenge. You're kind of just serving the star. You know, you do it, I give it everything I can, but it's not necessarily creatively fulfilling in a sense. You know, there's no challenge to it. You're in and out in a day or two. You know, as a theater, you're immersing yourself with three months, three days of intense rehearsal, three weeks rather, of intense rehearsal with the same people eight hours a day, and then you're doing the show for, you know, uh, every night and, you know, two, two, sometimes twice a day. Uh, and it's just so encompassing and it takes your entire day. You know, people think you're on stage for an hour and a half, two hours. No, from the moment you wake up in the morning, everything you do is building towards that hour and a half. Every meal you eat, how much you exercise, when you eat your meal, you know how you how much you talk because you might be blowing your voice out is all geared towards focusing on that two hours a day. So it's just invigorating. Theater's just invigorating. If it's good writing, see that's the other thing. You know, you do TV. You know, I've been fortunate to be on some of the greatest shows with great writing. But a lot of times, the scenes you have one line. You work a day, you have two lines. This is like the language. If the language is good and it's just flowing out of your mouth, and you're getting to work with other actors and somehow. You know, it's the same guy every night, the same lines every night, but every night it's a little different and something new happens. That's uh, that's the excitement. I think any actor that does theater will tell you that. Now, you're from Queens, as we said earlier. How does a guy from Queens end up with horses? End up with horses? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Because when I was a kid, I, you know, I loved the rifleman as a kid. And uh, when I was little, I remember seeing, what was his name, uh, uh, Mark, the son, I remember an episode where he rode his horse to school, and he had his books on the saddlebag, rode his horse to school, tied up the horse, went into the one-room schoolhouse, came out, rode his horse home. And I remember being a little kid in Queens living in an apartment building, of all things, thinking, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen, that you ride a horse to school, and the horse is there when you come out, and then you ride the horse home. I just thought that was... It was a fantasy of mine from the time I was, I don't know, six or seven. So, I mean, there was a little stable in Queens that I went to about 10 times, you know, when you go with those nose to tail trail rides where you're just kind of, you know, not doing much and maybe you run a little bit. Um, but then I didn't really ride since then. But then when about uh, seven years ago, Wendy Malick, you know Wendy Malick, yeah? 
right. from uh, yeah, Just Shoot Me and yeah. Home Cleveland and every movie ever made. Um, she's been a friend of mine, and Dan Laurie is, as a matter of fact, for, you know, 20 or so years. And she lives up here, and she has a beautiful property, and she's always had horses. And I'd go visit her. I was always comfortable about, with her horses. Just I just felt naturally at ease being around them, even though I didn't ride. I would just go say hello to them and pet them, and I just or groom them. I just felt comfortable with them. Then she adopted these two Mustangs, these two uh, rescued Mustangs from a place called Return to Freedom that saves Mustangs that have been rounded up. And then when the horses were about three, she wanted them, she was going to have them trained with this kind of natural horsemanship, gentle training, you know, none of this, nothing cruel, very gentle. And she said, and the trainer said, you know, it's really good if one person joins up with each horse to, to, to train them. And she said, do you want to learn about horses and train this horse at the same time? And I'm like, uh, yeah. So that's how it happened. This horse and I just bonded, and I'm really, got a great relationship with all of them. She was five minutes from here. As a matter of fact, as soon as I hang up from you, I'm going to go up there. Um, so that's how it happened. It's just something, it was a fantasy of mine since I was a little kid. And then out of nowhere, the opportunity came through through Wendy as a friend. And um, that's how I got involved. And I got involved with with the, the rescuing of the wild horses and protecting the wild horse, the wild mustangs and, and all those charities as well. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a life-changing it was a life-changing experience for me. I'm never more at peace when I go up there. Sometimes I don't even ride. I'll just go, and these horses aren't stalled. They kind of roam around. So I'll just go for a little walk, and I'll have three horses without reins just walking with me. And it's just it's just so peaceful. I never look at my phone except to take pictures. I never look at, oh, geez, did my agent call? Or It's just, you know, when young actors ask me for advice, the one thing I always tell them, is find something outside of the business that gives you some joy. It doesn't have to be horses, and my, it changes for me. Those, you know, 20 years ago, I was really into kayaking. So I would go out and kayak, and that would give me peace. Something that is not related to the business that you get joy from that you don't need somebody else's permission to do. Because that's the thing about being an actor. Somebody else has to give you permission to do it. You know, not like a musician wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning as inspiration for a song, you can do it. An actor, you know, you need somebody else. So, um, so that's it. I just give them, and I'm, I've been fortunate enough that over the years I've found these other things that give me joy every day that don't rely on this business because this business will beat the hell out of you. If you if you if you put all your happiness eggs in the business basket, you're screwed. Now you're gonna be bitter. Now, before we go. How did you how did you uh, fall into doing a cameo? How does that work? And it, it, I, I saw your cameo. How does does someone approach you and say, "Hey Ray, do this cameo," or do you do you sit there and go, "Hey, I, I can make some cash. People like me." How does that work? No, you... no. I think it came from Joe Pantoliano. Joey Pants has been doing them apparently, and uh, then he recommended me to the company. There's this company called Cameo, and they contacted me and they said, "You could do these if you want. You don't have to do them." You know, and, uh, you know, maybe somebody will want you to wish their brother a happy birthday or something. So I, I signed up for it, not expecting anything. And then I did one, and needless to say, they all want little Carmineisms in their greetings. So it's just a cameo. I think it's cameo.com, and there's a million people on it. And uh, 
you could go and for whatever price the person set. Some people charge like hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these. I, to me, that's not it. It's not about the money. It's like I really a, enjoy doing them, and people's reactions have been great, and it's and they're fun. Especially now, it's like an actor can't work from home. Now while I'm stuck in my house, it's like oh, this is fun because I get to kind of add live this little carmine. Uh, and and connect with people and and they've really been a lot of fun and you know, and then you can donate the money to charity I'm doing it for uh, next week I'm all my proceeds are going towards uh, uh, feeding the children feeding children during this uh, this crisis from food banks so um, yeah no it's a cool thing cameo I think it's called cameo.com I think that's the yeah that's what website. it is yeah. Anyway, I, yeah. I want, to, I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. You know, you were on a long time ago, and I just wanted to go back over your career, and, and you were a great guest back then. And, and it's weird because, you know, you sit there, and in seven years, it it passes, but then you're like, holy crap, it was seven years. It didn't seem that long. I can't believe it's seven years. I swear to God, if you waterboarded me, I would have said three years. If you would have said, when did you go see Steve in Burbank? It was Burbank, wasn't it? Yeah. Isn't that where it went? Yeah. I, I remember it so clearly. And I swear to God, if they were pouring water down my throat, I would say, three years, it's three years. You know? No, no. Are you, are you still tweeting? Are you still on Twitter? I'm still doing Yeah, not as much Twitter, you know. I started another Instagram page, Real Ray Abruzzo, where I just kind of do more show-busy stuff, you know, pictures. Uh, you know, I don't know what, maybe it's because of all this going on, I'm feeling very nostalgic, and that's why talking to you is fun, too. You know, I'm posting pictures from plays and a lot of Sopranos pictures, behind-the-scenes pictures I had. So that's Real Abruzzo, um, Real Ray Abruzzo at, at, on Instagram. And uh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, so I'm doing, I'm doing that stuff. Good, well, I'm going to thank you. Know, I, what were you going to say? Yeah. No, what were you going to say? What were you going to say? Uh, uh, and then, I, of course, I still rant politically on my own personal <laughs> stuff. But that's, uh, <laughs> you do you do rant politically. <laughs> I think real rant is the way to go. <laughs> yeah, you like to rant, but that's okay. Everyone's ranting these days. But so, people, yeah. go check out the real Ray Abruzzo. Go on to IMDb. Look at all his credits. Watch some of his his work great actor uh go back and watch the sopranos you know it's, it's such a iconic show i've been thinking about going back and watching it and uh so people... i think they're showing i think they're showing it for free now i think hbo has even the people that don't have hbo there's certain shows they're letting you stream for free okay i think and i think i think sopranos is one of them well people go watch it uh and then people go to my website coopertalk.net i have over 780 episodes email me cooper at coopertalk.net Twitter at Cooper Talk and go to Facebook. I have a new page, Cooper Talk Radio. I never really did a page on Facebook. I did, but I didn't follow up with it. I want to get it going. So go to on Facebook, Cooper Talk Radio. Look me up and follow me. So people, be careful out there. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>